All right, Hamlet, Act 4. Now, the first scene of Act 4 is a continuation of the last scene of Act 3. There really shouldn't be an act or a scene break there because what happens is Hamlet drags the body off. The queen is still there. Then the king comes in and asks her what's wrong. You know, there's matter in the size. He sees that she's distraught and uh, asks how Hamlet is doing. And Gertrude replies, mad as the sea and wind when both contend, which is the mightier. Now, and tells how he's killed uh, Polonius. Now, it's interesting, and again, very typical of this play, we don't know whether Gertrude believed Hamlet or not. She tells Claudius that Hamlet is mad, but of course, she would do that if she did believe him, because that's what he, he told her to, to say, to you know keep my cover. But she would also say that if she didn't believe him. Uh, there's so much that's unknowable, even little things like that. There's an early version, the first printed version of Hamlet was, it's called the Bad Quarto. The Quarto is a kind of book that was published back then. And it's bad because it seems to have been a pirated version that another uh, company had a spy who listened to the play and tried to reconstruct it. Um, And in that version, it's very clear at this point that Gertrude is on Hamlet's side. She accepts him, and she's kind of working behind the scenes for him. But in the version we have that's authorial, that we know that Shakespeare wrote, that's not clear at all. Um, now, one thing that is clear to Claudius is what the, the murder of Polonius means. He says, line 13, it had been so with us had we been there. It was like, you know, I could have been the one who got killed here. Um, so he says, uh, and he, look at the, he uses the disease metaphor that comes so often in this play, uh, round line 22, like the owner of a foul disease to keep it from divulging, let it feed even on the pith of life. That's, we, we've, uh, we've concealed this disease and it's eaten away at us inside. And that's very much the kind of imagery he used about his own conscience gnawing at him. So he sends off Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to go find Hamlet, and they do in the next very short scene. Um, And uh, Rosencrantz asks, What have you done, my lord, with the dead body? Compounded it with dust, where to tis kin. Um, And so he won't tell them. You know, it's, uh, uh, they ask, he says, uh, you know, don't believe that I can keep your counsel and not mine own. Besides, just to be demanded of a sponge, what re- uh, replication should be made by the son of a king? Take you me for a sponge, my lord? Uh, now, this echoes uh, the, the way he was playing with Polonius earlier. You know, he's a, you're a fish, I know you well, you're a fishmonger. Uh, well, here, and he, he describes the joke here. Uh, you're a sponge that soaks up the king's countenance, his rewards, his authorities. Uh, you know, you're a sponge who soaks up all the goodwill of the king, but when he's through with you, uh, when he needs uh, what you have gleaned, it is but squeezing you, and sponge, you shall be dry again. So he knows that they are spies. They will soak up everything Hamlet says, and when the king squeezes them, they'll tell they'll tell it all to him. Um, so then we get back to the king, and he's describe he's explaining why he's sending Hamlet away to England. Um, 
he says, line four, that he's loved of the distracted multitude who like not in their judgment, but their eyes. And where tis so, tis, uh, so the offender's scourge is weighed, but never the offense. So Hamlet is very popular, this distracted multitude. And notice that this place, so full of these kinds of incidental echoes, who like not in their judgment, but their eyes. This echoes the speech that Hamlet was just giving to Gertrude about uh, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. Uh, Your judgment is wrong. What's wrong with you? So the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern bring bring Hamlet in, and we get uh, another confrontation between Hamlet and King uh, Claudius. He says, line um, uh, 18, he says, Now Hamlet... Where's Polonius? At supper. At supper? Where? Not where he eats, but where he is eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are even at him. Your worm is your only emperor for diet. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes but to one table. That's the end. Uh, so again, we see the wittiness of Hamlet, that he's at, the Polonius is at supper, not, not that he's eating something, that he's being eaten. And then he, as he so often does, his mind tends to, he, he expands that to a universal principle. Uh, we fat all creatures else to fat us and fat ourselves for maggots. So we, we are, we're at the top of the food chain until we're dead, and then the lowest thing is eating us. Um, notice, too, that this is a, a, another place in the play where two things that should be absolutely distinguishable, like to be or not to be, or a hawk and a handsaw, turn out to be indistinguishable. The fat king and the lean beggar, they both wind up the same. Um and, you know, uh, Polonius, uh, Claudius insists, where is Polonius? And Hamlet answers again, over literally, in heaven, send thither to see. If your messenger find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. That is a very uh, Shakespearean way of telling somebody, go to hell. Says, but if indeed you find him not within this month, you shall nose him as you go up the stair into the lobby. He says, you know, if, if, if you don't find him for a month, don't worry, you'll smell him real good. And uh, so the, the servants run off to find him, and Hamlet says, he will stay till you come. You know, there's no rush. Uh, again, Hamlet's kind of manic wit here. Um, it seems very clearly not madness. This is Hamlet being a step ahead of everybody. Um, of course, Claudius thinks he's a step of ha- ahead of Hamlet here. Um and he says uh, that he's sending him to England, and Hamlet says, good. And the king says, so it is, if thou knewest our purpose. Um, and Hamlet ends this, uh, exits on the line, farewell, dear mother, thy loving father, Hamlet. They're all treating him like he's crazy, though I think Claudius knows he's just acting crazy at this point. But Hamlet expands on that. My mother, father and mother, is man and wife, Man and wife is one flesh, so my mother. There again, you notice two things that are absolutely opposites and indistinguishable uh, can be made to be identical. 
Um, now, when Hamlet leaves and he's sent off with uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to England, we find out in a little soliloquy uh, from Claudius what the plans are. He's not just sending him to get him out of the way. He's, uh, he's ordered, as he says in line 64, the present death of Hamlet. He's, got, he's sent a letter that is going to order Hamlet's execution. It says, do it, England, for like the hectic in my blood he rages, and thou must cure me. There's that disease imagery again. Till I know tis done, howe'er my haps, my joy will ne'er begin. So this shows us the, um, the mortal peril that Hamlet is walking into. Now, in scene four, we meet Fortinbras. Now, we've heard about Fortinbras from the beginning of the play. Remember, he was the one who was attacking Denmark. He's the reasons they were guarding the, the castle. Uh, but uh, Claudius sent the, uh, the emissaries to go get Fortinbras' uncle to control Fortinbras. Notice, I mean, this is that, that wonderful line of, of Polonius, by indirections, find directions out. Claudius didn't go uh, send a message to Fortinbras. He sent a message to Norway, who was Fortinbras's uncle, who he knew would be able to control Fortinbras. Uh, very few people ever do anything directly. Uh, the whole play within the play is another indirection. Uh, it's setting up the play to see how Claudius will react to d- discover whether he's really guilty or not. Um, but we see Fortinbras, and he is leading his army, as it was mentioned the, uh, the last time, uh, over uh, through Denmark and Poland. He's going to go fight there. And Hamlet is leaving the country and kind of runs into the, the, one of the captains from Norway and uh, asks what they're going. He says, well, they're going to uh, the, uh, Fortinbras, the nephew of Norway, is going uh, against a small part of Poland. In fact, uh, the Norwegian captain says, line 17, truly to speak, and with no addition, we go to gain a little patch of ground that hath in it no profit but the name. To pay five ducats, five, I would not farm it, nor will it yield to Norway or the Pole a ranker rate, should it be sold in fee. Why, then the Polak never will defend it. Yes, it is already garrisoned. So here, they're going to fight over this insignificant little thing, that you know, piece of land that's not strategically important, it's not, it's not valuable land. They're just fighting for the honor of it, for the hell of it, for, for, for this. And Hamlet, as he tends to do, uh, sees in this a reflection of his own situation. It, it causes him, as almost everything seems to cause Hamlet, to do, to be self-reflective. So we get yet another of Hamlet's great soliloquies here. Hamlet says, this is line 32, How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast, no more. Sure, he that made us with such a large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. 
So here he's saying that every every occasion reminds him he should be speak, seeking revenge. That just kind of dully going along like an animal. No, we have we have reason. We have our higher faculties. And it's again interestingly ironic that he's talking about the higher faculties of man will spur you on to revenge, which doesn't seem like a particularly noble cause. Um, and he says, now whether it be bestial oblivion, this kind of animal going through life, or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, overanalyzing things, a thought which quartered has but one part wisdom and three part, and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. And he says, I, I, I don't understand why I haven't done this already. Um, this is the, the famous problem of Hamlet's delay. Why does he delay? Um, and, uh, you know, the Freudian critics think they have an answer, but it seems a far-fetched one to me. Uh, Hamlet, who is a lot smarter than most Freudian critics or anybody else, doesn't have an answer, which I think is much more honest. But he sees a, a reflection of uh, of himself, a kind of a, an opposite parallel in Fortinbras. Again, examples gross as earth exhort me. Here's this army led by a delicate and tender prince whose spirit with divine ambition puffed makes mouths at the invisible event exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare even for an eggshell. So here's this guy who, for, for a trivial thing, is expo- you know, exposing himself to uh, potential death. Um, now, a lot of this... I, I don't think, if you were to describe anyone this, in this play as a delicate and tender prince, it would be Hamlet, not Fortinbras. I think Hamlet is projecting here. Or look in that next line, that phrase, with divine ambition puffed. Look at the way ambition is, is has those double mod- modifiers. Divine ambition makes it sound wonderful. Ambition puffed makes it sound bloated and, you know, uh, self-important. It's amazing the way Shakespeare does those things. So Hamlet draws the conclusion, rightly, to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. And so here, that's the example he draws from Fortinbras's sending a whole army for this pointless piece of land. He said, how stand I then? Now notice, in the same way he made a comparison in an earlier soliloquy, if this player can get himself emotionally worked up about this imaginary situation, how much more worked up should I be? You know, and now again, if Fortinbras can get, uh, you know, can risk his life and an army over this trivial thing, why can't I get uh, worked up over this important thing? He says, how stand I then that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep? Well, to my shame, I see the imminent death of 20,000 men that for fantasy, a trick of fame, go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. So he ends with this stirring resolution. He is fixed on his revenge 
And what does he do? He goes off to England. Wait, wait, what? He's just, that sounds like he ought to be running back to kill Claudius. No, he's got this resolution, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. Uh, yeah, now I'm going to go away for the, the next act of the play. Um, it's again, this play is always zagging when you think it's going to zig. And the rest of Act 4, in fact, does not have Hamlet in it. Now, one of the main reasons for that, and it happens in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, particularly his tragedies, the main character kind of disappears for Act 4. The reason is that the actor needs to rest up for the big climax in Act 5. He, I mean, there, there are practical stage reasons for for that, of having Hamlet off stage for a while so he can, you know, get himself ready for the, the big duel at the end of the play. But we get back to the, the court, and a gentleman is telling us that Ophelia has gone mad. And look at the way he describes it. This is Act 4, Scene 5, Line 7. Her speech is nothing, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. They aim at it and botch the words up fit to their own thoughts, which, as her winks and nods and gestures yield them, indeed would make one think there might be thought, though nothing sure, yet much unhappily. So he's saying her, she has this nonsense speech. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's it's kind of like a Rorschach test. You know, you see just a blob of ink, but your mind makes a picture there. The same thing here. You know, you, you, we the people who hear it aim at it and kind of uh, interpret something, ascribe a meaning to it that might not really be there. Um, so Gertrude allows her to come in, and Gertrude has her one very short soliloquy. She says, um, line 17, To my sick soul, as sin's true nature is, each toy seems prologue to some great amiss. So her soul, she's saying she's soul-sick, and because of that, everything that happens seems like it's going to be another momentous tragedy. So full of artless jealousy is guilt, it spills itself in fearing to be spilt. Um, now, that's an interesting line. What is she guilty about? Is she guilty about the murder? Did she participate in the murder? Is she guilty about lying about Hamlet? Is she guilty about not lying about Hamlet and letting uh, Claudius send him off to England? Does she know that he's being sent to his death? I don't think so. But it's, again, one of these, it's it's a very powerful emotional moment for her, but it's one that we don't understand. Then in comes Ophelia, and her mad scene here, I think, makes a very interesting contrast with Hamlet's madness, so-called. Ophelia is mainly singing these songs and saying these nonsense lines, uh, but there's no sense, as there is with Hamlet, that she is ever in possession of her senses here. She's not making fun of Gertrude the way that Hamlet made fun of Polonius when he was pretending madness. Um, 
And the the songs, again, like uh, as the, the gentleman says about uh, the, her hearers, we can kind of botch the words and see the connections, even if maybe even Ophelia can't. Look at the song around line 30. He is dead and gone, lady, he is dead and gone. At his head a grass-green turf, at his heels a stone. Um, she's lamenting her father's death. Um, there are two things that she keeps repeating in the themes that she keeps repeating in these songs. One is death, and the other is betrayal by a lover. Look at the song that starts around line 49. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning betime, and I am made your window to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and dupped the chamber door, let in the maid that out a maid never departed more. So it's Valentine's Day. The young man uh, in, in, uh, gets the woman into his bed. She comes in a maid, a virgin, but she doesn't leave as a, a maid. Um, and she continues the song. By gifts and by saint charity, alack and fie for shame. Young men will do it if they come to it. By cock they are to blame. Quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. So would I have done by yonder son, and now it's not come to my bed. So the, the little story that's being told here is that the man gets the woman to sleep with him, and the the morning after, uh, he, she says, well, you, you said that if you uh, if I slept with you, you'd marry me. He said, well, I would I would marry someone if you want someone who wasn't a slut and would sleep with me. Uh, you know, that kind of impossible situation. And you have to think that this is some kind of crazy echo of her disappointment in Hamlet. And especially, remember the situation she's in. Her father has been murdered by the man she loves. She feels doubly betrayed by Hamlet for his rejection of her romantically and for his murdering her father. Um... And a lot of this, these kind of body, you know, by cock they are to blame, these body implications in her uh, uh, language are also uh, a sign of her madness. And notice that while Hamlet's quote-unquote mad scenes are mostly very funny, there's nothing really funny about this. This is very sad. Um, it's, uh, it's tragic. And look at the, the speech where Claudius comes in, and he kind of sums up the, the, the plot here in a speech that begins around line 75. He says, Oh, this is the poison of deep grief. It springs all from her father's death. All right. There we have two of the main themes, or two of the themes in the, in the uh, story. Poisoning, right? The father's death, grief, and the reaction to that. And now behold, O Gertrude, Gertrude, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Well, spying has been a theme as well, and the military imagery has been from the very beginning of the play. First, her father slain, next, your son gone, and he, most violent author of his own just remove. That's what he's saying literally is that Hamlet had to leave because of what he did. But think about that phrase, the most violent author of his own just remove. If I just took that out of context, it sounds like it's describing suicide. 
another theme in the play. The people muddied, thick and unwholesome. That thick and unwholesome is the very language that the ghost used to describe his poisoning. Uh, unwholesome in their thoughts and whispers for good Polonius' death, and we have done but greenly and hugger-mugger to inter him. So they had to kind of hush it up and, and uh, uh, bury Polonius in secret. Poor Ophelia, divided from herself and her fair judgment, there's the theme of madness, without the which we are pictures or mere beasts. The counter, Remember the two pictures, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers, um, a beast that wants discourse of reason would have mourned longer. Uh, last, and as much containing as all these, her brother is in secret come from France, feeds on this wonder, keeps himself in clouds. Hamlet, why is how is it the clouds still hang on you? Keeps himself in clouds, and wants not buzzers to infect his ear. There's another ear reference in the play, with pestilent speeches of his father's death. Of course, Hamlet's ear has been infected with the speeches of his father's death. Pestilent is the disease metaphor. Uh, We're in necessity of matter beggared. Will nothing stick our person to a rein in ear and ear? Oh, my dear Gertrude, this, like a murdering peace in many places, gives me superfluous death. So it's like a, a can, a shatter, you know, a buckshot, shatter, shatter Scott, scatter shot, uh, where it kills him several ways at once. Well, that's exactly the kind of plot that they're going to come up to kill Hamlet with, a, a superfluous death, many ways at once. So that's an example of just, you know, one speech as kind of a nexus of themes and images and ideas. And almost all of the major speeches in the play, you could do that with. It's such a deeply woven fabric of themes and ideas and motifs. Uh, and I think it's appropriate in this speech that is summarizing the plot up to now, it, it particularly strong in that. So Laertes has come back, and think about how differently he acts as an avenging son than Hamlet did. Hamlet approaches everything indirectly. Laertes is getting the people rallied to him, and he's storming the castle, and he's going to kill uh, uh, the king, right? Uh, He doesn't realize yet that it's Hamlet who killed his father. He's blaming uh, Claudius. Now, that's a mistake that Hamlet would never make. Hamlet would always check and double-check and triple-check. Laertes is hot-headed. So, which one is better? Haven't we wanted Hamlet to act, you know, we're going to bold and directly the way Laertes did? And yet, when Laertes acts, it turns out it's not nearly as effective as we might have thought. Um, He says, um, uh, around uh, line uh, 117, that drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard. What do you mean, be calm? Um, And Claudius is able to talk him down. Laertes is insisting on his revenge, but um, Claudius is able to kind of talk him down off the ledge here. But then in comes Ophelia, and this just crushes Laertes. This is around line 160. He says, is it possible 
a young maid's wits should be as mortal as an old man's life. So my father lost his life and my my sister has lost her mind in the same stroke. Um, now, Claudius is assured Laertes, as says, I'm guiltless of your father's death. Um, and we get, to, again, this very tragic, sad scene of Ophelia um, singing these little snatches of songs. Um, they bore him barefaced on the bier, and in his grave reigned many a tear. Farewell, uh, fare you well, my dove. Again, thinking about her father's death. Um, and it, we get the thing where she's passing out flowers to everyone, um, rosemary for remembrance, um, and, you know, there's fennel for you and columbines, all of this. Um, she's just not in touch with the real world anymore. Um, and, it, you know, it just crushes Laertes. But notice that by the end of the scene, the king, this exchange they have, um, the king says at the very end, where the offense is, let the great axe fall. I pray you, go with me. So uh, Claudius has already figured out how he's going to, he can, and quite rightly, tell Laertes that Hamlet is the one responsible and avoid the problems himself. Then we get a brief scene where we get Horatio in scene six gets a letter from Hamlet, and we find out what Hamlet's been up to. Um, They were sailing to England, then they were boarded by a pirate ship. Uh, the pirates attack them. This is around line 17. Finding ourselves too slow of sail, we put on a compelled valor. Uh, they, they couldn't outrun them, so they had to fight. And in the grapple, I boarded them. On the instant, they got clear of our ship, so I alone became their prisoner. They have dealt with me like thieves of mercy, but they know what they did. I am to do a turn for them. Uh, let the king have these letters. Um, so... He's been kidnapped by pirates, and he's going to. He's coming back to England, and it tells him, "I have words to speak in thine ear; will make thee dumb." There's that theme of speaking in silence again, and reference to ears. So the sailors got to take him to uh, deliver the letters to Claudius. Now, the last scene, a very long scene in Act Four, we start off with Laertes and uh, Claudius. And it's clear that he's that Claudius has explained to Laertes that Hamlet is guilty. And Laertes wanted to know, well, why didn't you punish him? And Claudius says, line 10, you know, he has two reasons. First, the queen, his mother, lives almost by his looks. He says, his mother is so in love with him, I couldn't hurt him, at least in her know about it. And he says, the second, line 18, is the great love the general gender bear him, who, dipping all his faults in their affection, work like the spring that turneth wood to stone, convert his gyves to graces. Again, he's loved of the distracted multitude. He's so popular that everybody thinks he's great. And Claudius realizes that any punishment he gave to Hamlet would redouble on him, he says, would have reverted to my uh, bow uh, again, but not where I had aimed them. So if he had shot at them, it would have boomeranged back on himself. 
and Laertes says, well, my revenge will come. Now, at this point, Claudius is all confident he's going to be able to, he's going to get the news pretty soon that Hamlet is dead, and that'll be the, the end of it. Then we get a messenger who comes in. It says, these to your majesty, this to the queen. From Hamlet? Who brought them? Sailors, my lord, they say. I saw them not. They were given me by Claudio. He received them of him that brought them. Now notice here, even in this very incidental moment, it would be just as easy to have the mess, these uh, come directly from Hamlet. But no, I didn't get the letters. The sailors got the letters, and they gave the letters to Claudio, and Claudio gave them to me. But this is the way things work, by indirections, finding directions out in this play. You know, the ghost of Hamlet's father, he didn't go to Hamlet. He went to the guards, who then went to Horatio, who then went to Hamlet, who brought Hamlet back to the ghost. Uh, that's the way things work in this play. And even a little tiny uh, moment like that uh, reflects the, the overall structure. It's one of the reasons this is such a classic, is it's so... Uh, every element of it uh, kind of fits in into a, a, an overall pattern. Well, the letters... Uh, tell us that Hamlet is coming back, and now Claudius's plans obviously have not worked. And he asks Laertes, line uh, 55, will you be ruled by me? Claudius wants Laertes' loyalty. Now remember, just in a couple of scenes ago, Laertes had a sword out and was ready to kill Claudius. Now he's got Laertes in the palm of his hand. He's got to get him to swear loyalty to him. And he tells them this story about how Hamlet has always been jealous about what a great swordsman you are. Uh, it, this goes on quite a, a while about this man who came in. And again, it's not direct. It's about a man who told, the, uh, told us the story about what a great swordsman Laertes was, and that made Hamlet feel um, jealous. Um, this man, uh, this Frenchman, Lamord, came in and said all of this. In um, line 100, this report of his did Hamlet so envenom with his envy that he could nothing do but wish and beg your sudden coming or to play with you. He wants to fence with uh, Laertes to prove that he's better. Um, this seems awfully out of character for Hamlet. Uh, it, there's no indication that any of this is true. Is is Claudius making this up out of whole cloth? Um He's going on at quite a length about it. Um, then he asks at 106, he says, Laertes, was your father dear to you? Or are you like the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart? And here's another way in, in echoes with Hamlet. Hamlet said that uh, his grief did not seem. He had that within which passeth show these but the trappings and the suits of woe. And so he's asking, is this just a painted sorrow? And, and Laertes, why do you ask? Not that I think you do not love your father, but that I know love is begun by time, and that I see in passages of proof, time qualifies the spark and fire of it. He said, you know, this things... I'm not saying you didn't love your father. I know that, but time tends to heal all wounds. It it, it modifies uh, tensions and passions. Um, 
And he tells him, line 116, that we would do, we should do when we would. For this would changes and hath abatements and delays, as many as there are tongues or hands or accidents. And then this should is like a spinthrift sigh that hurts by easing. So he's saying, look, you should act when the when it strikes you, you should act because it's very easy for that to get turned aside. And again, think of the thematic relevance of this to the play at large. Isn't that what's happened to Hamlet? He's you know sweeping to his revenge, but he's gotten continually sidetracked. Um, and think about the the player king speech. Uh, what we do determined, off we break. Our thoughts are ours, their ends, none of our own. Uh, so again, the, the play is very much of a piece. But he asks him, um, what would you do, what would you undertake to show yourself indeed your father's son more than in words? To cut his throat in the church. Now that has to remind us of the scene where Hamlet refused to kill Claudius when he thought Claudius was praying. Uh, Laertes would have no such scruples. He, I would cut his throat in the church. And Claudius says, well, indeed, uh, no place indeed should murder, sanctuary, revenge, should know no bounds. But good Laertes, will you do this? So he's coming up with this plan. We're, we're going, when Hamlet comes back, we're going to get him to have, fight a duel with you. And you will have a sword unbated. Now, in Fencing matches, the, 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 you would blunt or bait the end of the rapier so that it couldn't stab anyone. Rapiers were not cutting weapons, they were stabbing weapons. They didn't have a, uh, an, an edge that you could chop somebody's arm off with. They had a point that you could stab into them with. Uh, so, But they're going to give Laertes an unbaited so, rapier so that he can actually accidentally kill Hamlet. And then Laertes says, I, I will do that, and I've got another idea. He says, I've got a poison, and uh, as says line 144, I'll touch my point with this contagion that if I gall him slightly, it may be death. So now I don't have to give him a fatal wound just with the sword. I can, if I just scratch him, I'll have a poison that's so potent on the sword that that will kill him. And Claudius likes that idea, but he says this uh, <clears throat> this project, line 151, should have a back or second uh, that might hold if this uh, did blast in proof. So if that doesn't work, we need something else. And he says, oh, I have it. When in your motion you are hot and dry, as make your bouts more violent to that end, and that he calls for drink... I'll have prepared him a chalice for the nonce, whereon but sipping, if he by chance escape your venom stuck, our purpose may hold there. So, they're going to have a sharpened sword that can kill him, and the point of that sharpened sword will be poisoned, which can kill him, and they're going to have standing by a, a poisoned drink that can kill him. This is, uh, again, superfluous death in many places that they're planning. And all of this is very kind of elaborately planned um, in a way we haven't seen before. I mean, uh, but we'll see 
how those plans pan out in the last act. Now, as they finish wrapping up their plot, or maybe they would have come up with a fourth thing if the queen hadn't come in at this point to tell us that to tell Laertes, your sister's drowned, Laertes. And she gives the this long speech describing it. Uh, there is a willow grows a scant the brook and shows his hoary leaves in the grassy, glassy stream. Therewith fantastic garlands did she make of crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our colds ma- cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. So we hear, again, we have uh, Ophelia with her flowers, and that dead men's fingers, um, the, the, the grosser name would have been uh, another part of the male anatomy, uh, which again fits in with the body references we heard from Ophelia before. There on the pendant boughs, her crowned weeds, clamoring to hang, an envious sliver broke, when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. So she tried to hang up these flower garlands on the willow tree, and the branch broke off, and they all, it all fell into, into the river. Um, her clothes spread wide, and mermaid like a while they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old lauds, as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued into that element. So for a moment, her her clothes were like a life preserver. They kind of buoyed her up. And she was just kind of singing as she always does, not seeming aware of what's going on. But long it could not be, till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. Alas, then she is drowned, drowned, drowned. So... Here's the, the, the tragic ending of Ophelia's tragic story. Um, and as, as Claudius points out, um, how much I had to do to calm his rage, now fear I this will give it start again, therefore less follow. Uh, though actually I think he's secretly thinking, yeah, this will make him really pissed off at Hamlet. Um, and we'll see the results of that in Act 5. A couple of things to look for as you're reading Act 5. It's two scenes. The first takes place in a graveyard, and you'll see two grave diggers at the beginning of the scene. And uh, think about the kind of comedy that they do. What what are they talking about? What's the, the subject? This is Sometimes these scenes are called comic relief. I think that's an odd name for them. Um, but what is it particularly they're making jokes about? And then, as Hamlet comes into the graveyard, he will talk with the the gravedigger and think about how his exchanges with the gravedigger go and who gets the best of those exchanges. Um, You might think about the ways that these are like or unlike his exchanges with Polonius or with Claudius. Um, Then we get a confrontation between uh, uh, Hamlet and Laertes in the, in the graveyard, which will set up the big confrontation in, in Act 5, Scene 2. Now, the whole thing leads to this big duel between them, but before we get there, several things happen. Uh, we find out what happened to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. 
uh, we're going to get a long conversation with a new ca- whole new character, Osric. Think about what Osric is doing in here. Uh, how does Hamlet inter- interact with him? Then we get the duel itself, and we've heard from Claudius and uh, uh, Laertes how they're planning to murder Hamlet. Look at how their plans unfold, where they go wrong. Uh, just think about what's going on, and particularly try to imagine the staging of this scene. Uh, what would it look like, this big duel that they're having? Uh, the the stage directions will help you, but really think about what it would look like. And how does the tragic ending occur? What what happens? What's the, the tone of the end of this play? Uh, and we'll also be thinking uh, kind of more generally about the whole idea of tragedy and in what way Hamlet is a tragedy. It certainly is, but in what way? Um, you might, in thinking about that, think about what are the things that we call tragic in real life, not in literature. We call something a tragedy. But if you call something a tragedy in real life, what kind of things do you call? And what are the what's the common denominator among those things that you would say or a tragedy. Well, we'll be thinking about that and uh, many other things for the exciting conclusion of Hamlet. If you have questions, uh, Hamlet has lots of questions. Hopefully you do too. Uh, my email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>